Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Slab reconstruction, combined with paleomagnetic and paleographic constraints, indicates that in the central Apennines, the latest Mycenaean arrival of carbonate platform at the subduction zone impeded subduction and initiated a slab tear and major strike-slip faults. These processes resulted in the formation of a narrow subducting slab beneath the Ionian Sea that has undergone faster subduction rollback and induced extreme rates of back arc extension. Quote from Neogene and Quaternary Rollback Evolution of the Tyrrhenian Sea and the Apennines and the Sicilian Maghrebides by Gideon Rosbaum and Gordon S. Lister. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Hello and welcome to From Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is episode 12, Walking Tour Episode 8, Italy and the Islands. Before we begin, I have some announcements. First off, Not a Surf has a new album out. It would be a great thank you to them for letting me use their music as my intro and outro theme if you would all go to notasurf.com and check it out. You don't have to buy it, just check it out. Second is the big one for you, dear listeners. After a year of this project, we are finally live on iTunes. Hooray! This has been a long time coming, and I'm really happy that it finally happened. Uh, iTunes is the way the vast, vast majority of people find things, and I've already seen a bump in the listenership, which is great for everybody here. To new listeners, I say, hello, welcome, and please feel free to contact me if you have any questions or concerns at the website, wittenbergtowestphalia.weebly.com or on the Facebook page, which is Wittenberg to Westphalia. You can do a search. Check it out. As part of this new state of affairs, I am pushing ahead with my efforts to clean things up on the website and make the feed better. I've already cleaned up the metadata, and you'll probably notice the new show icon. If you don't notice the show icon, let me know. It's not exactly clear how long I'm going to be able to keep pushing ahead. I do have this uh, new baby and everything, and the next month is looking a little bit hectic, but we'll cross those bridges when we come to them. Now, I do have a request for all you kind listeners as part of this new iTunes news. Even if you do not regularly use iTunes, if you could, please head over to the iTunes store, find the podcast, and then rate it with a written review. 
Five-star reviews with written reviews attached to them are a huge deal for us podcaster types, as it helps the cast climb in the ratings and it makes it more likely that we will get noticed by new listeners, which will bring more listeners, and encourage me in my continued efforts to ignore my family in favor of sitting in an unair-conditioned office and yelling at my computer about European history. Moving on. Italy! I have been excited to do this episode for months. You start a project like this expecting to learn things, but when I began toying with the idea of a podcast about the Thirty Years' War, I would never have predicted that I would be so excited about the geological origins of Italy and end up reading a paper entitled <clears throat> New Gene and Quaternary Rollback Evolution of the Tyrrhenian Sea, the Apennines, and the Sicilian Magrobetes. I'm still not clear on what most of that means. And yet, here we are, dear listener, here we are, and my heart is all a pitter and a patter. So let's get to it in that most walking tour way, by defining the parameters of the region. This is actually sort of easy for once. Italy is a peninsula bounded in the north by the peaks of the Alps, to the east by the Adriatic Sea, and everywhere else by the Mediterranean Sea. Famously, it looks like a high-heeled boot. The Apennine Mountains run up the entire length of the peninsula, meeting the Alps at the northwest corner of the peninsula. Sweet! Good day's work, team. We're all done, right? It's Miller time. Or, well tasty craft beer time. A complicating factor here is the issue of the Mediterranean islands. I'm sure I do not need to reiterate yet again the tendency of large water bodies to unite rather than to divide humans, but since the islands are actually going to be important, a more thorough guide to them and the surrounding oceans is probably in order here. First is Sicily. Sicily is often compared to a soccer ball being kicked by the boot of Italy, except that it is distinctly triangular and therefore a pretty badly deflated soccer ball. Sicily is separated from Italy by the very narrow Straits of Messina, and from North Africa by the much wider Strait of Sicily. This axis of North Africa, Sicily, and Italy is the conventional divide between the western and eastern Mediterranean seas. North of Sicily, along the west coast of Italy, is a body of water called the Tyrrhenian Sea. Apologies up front if I'm pronouncing that or anything else wrong in this episode. Uh, anyway, in turn, the Tyrrhenian Sea is bounded on the east by Italy, of course, on the south by Sicily, as we just mentioned, on the west by the islands of Corsica and Sardinia. These islands are aligned north-south from one another and separated by the relatively narrow strait of Bonifacio. Corsica, in the north, is the smaller island, being about one-third the size of Sardinia. North of Corsica is the Ligurian Sea, which is bounded to the northwest by the French Riviera and to the northeast by Italy's Ligurian coast, oddly enough. West of Sardinia and Corsica is the Algerian Basin, a very large section of the Mediterranean. The Algerian Basin is bounded on the north by the French Mediterranean coast of the Riviera and Provence, and to the west by the Balearic Islands. These islands, in turn, form the eastern boundary of the Balearic Sea. The west of the Balearic Sea is a long, inward-curving section of the Iberian coast, with Barcelona at the northern tip and Valencia far at the back. I discussed this section of coast in the episode on Iberia as being owned by Catalonia. So let's review all that. We have the Adriatic to the west, then Italy and Sicily, then the Tyrrhenian Sea, then Corsica and Sardinia with the Ligurian Sea to the north, then the Algerian Basin, the Balearic Islands, the Balearic Sea, and then Iberia. We good? Okay. This may seem like a lot of places to try and cover in one episode, but to understand Italy's history, you need to understand the entire western Mediterranean as a whole, and this goes way back to the geological formation of the region. It was assumed for many years that, like most of the mountains in Europe, Italy was formed by the impact of the African plate with the European microplates. 
But a number of things about this conception didn't really add up, and the deeper one looked, the more problematic things became. First is the location. As we know, the Alps are the largest mountain range in Europe, and yet sticking out of the south end of them is this tail called Italy. Shouldn't Italy have been battered to dust before the creation of the Alps? Aren't most mountain formations, you know, perpendicular to the direction of movement? I mean, if you think about a car crash, when the metal in a car crash folds up into ridges, usually the ridges are at right angles to the direction of force. Whatever direction the car was moving when it hit, the folds in the metal are going to be at right angles to that. And yet here is Italy, basically a giant ridge line, in between Africa and the Alps, and in line with the direction of force. This might have been explained, maybe, if the mountains in Italy were lined up in a certain way to go in line with the north-south force of direction. But when you look at the types of mountains in Italy, things get even weirder. Most mountains have a single ridge line that shows a single type of stress, be it having the rocks crumpled up like a car crash, or having the rocks upended and smashed together, or whatever. But the Apennines have two different types of stress formations in two parallel ridge lines, and one is different from anything seen in the Alps. The eastern half of the Apennines, along the east coast of the peninsula, is formed by a so-called fold and thrust belt. If you've ever been out walking on a very wet, icy day, and scooted your foot along the ground, and had the slush all bunch up in front of your shoe into ridges that kind of form one big arc about your shoe, that's basically what this is. Essentially, the rocks are being pushed forward and slide under an upper layer until that layer breaks and slides under the next layer until it breaks and so on, creating this kind of a fan cross-section. The western Apennines are formed in a completely different fashion. These are called fault block mountains. If you've ever played with wooden blocks and put a bunch of them end to end and rammed them into your sister until some of the blocks flew up in the air, that is basically what a fault block mountain is. The rocks in the crust form big chunks, which are pushed together until the ones at the leading edge start to be pushed up and on top of the other ones. The Alps themselves do contain some thrustfold mountains, but it's only on the northern uh, European side where the force would be moving away from the creation of the Alps. The dominant structure in the Alps is called a recumbent fold, which is more like if you put pressure on a large stack of papers until they arc and fold into themselves. This is found in a few places in the Apennines, but is not widespread. So we have three different types of geological structure that were supposed to be formed at the same time. But that's not even the weird part. Block mountains are created by pushing against something. Thrust folds are kind of a type of pulling away. If you think about it, when you're scooting your shoe in the snow, the snow is moving away from your foot. So that kind of mountain formation is the result of being pushed against. It makes sense that there's some thrust faulting on the northern side of the Alps, as a result of them taking the impact from Africa. But the thrust faulting in the Alps is not the dominant landform, it's sort of more something that happens in the hills. It's conceivable that block fault and thrust fault formations would form together, although it's very, very rare. But if they were, they would be aligned in entirely the wrong direction, because as Italy stands now, everything is aligned east-west rather than north-south. Now, it's conceivable that Italy rotated into position from somewhere else, as we'll see, that is sort of what happened, but any conceivable way where that would have happened would have left the thrustfold faulting in entirely the wrong place. Okay, so let's say Italy rotated down clockwise. So originally, the thrust folding would have been on the inside of the rotation, it would have been up against the Alps in the Balkans. 
In that case, the thrust folding would have been up against other mountains, in which case, how did those mountains get formed because the thrust fold should have acted as a shock absorber? If it rotated the other way, counterclockwise, so that Italy would have been around southern France, then the thrust faulting would have been facing towards Africa. And since thrust faulting is supposed to be moving away from the direction of force, that doesn't make sense either. Then there's the issue of the Po Valley. The Po Valley is a major river in northern Italy that crosses three quarters of the northern end of the peninsula on a flat, grassy plain. So you have the Alps in the north, and the Apennines running south, and this big, flat plain in the middle. The Apennines only connect to the Alps by this thin little mountainous band that skirts around the edges of this plain. That doesn't make any sense at all. If the Apennines were created by Africa pressing Italy north, the Po Valley ought to be full of mountains, but it's this big, flat, grassy plain. And by the way, Italy is extraordinarily mountainous, so why is there this big, flat, grassy plain just basically in the middle of it, closest to the biggest mountain chain in Europe? Somehow geologists didn't bother looking into all this until the 1960s. The assumption was made that the Apennines were just part of the Alpine network of mountains, and had somehow rotated off of Europe proper in the years since their formation. But that doesn't jive with so many of the factors I just described. You would think a country in Europe would not have any mysteries left like this in the 20th century. But southern Europe has long been ignored by northern European scholars. So in the 1960s, a team of Italian geologists finally got together the funding to go check it out for themselves. They started out in the Po Valley, digging trenches to examine the soil and rocks in a scientific way. Then they moved up into the Apennines nearby. Their conclusions blew everyone's mind, and has been confirmed and carried forward by a number of institutions ever since, who have confirmed their findings with increasingly sophisticated techniques and tools, including, these days, undersea examinations, which is very exciting. Essentially, Italy is not part of a continent or a plate or anything like that. It's the result of the impact of two completely underwater mini-plates that underlie sections of the western Mediterranean, but have big chunks of the Alps floating on top of them. That's... Okay, that's probably going to take some explanation. So, way, way back when the Alps were formed, they formed a continuous mountainous band that went from the tip of the Iberian Peninsula to the end of the Carpathians. This was about 300 million years ago. Today we can see the Pyrenees and the Alps sections of the chain, but the middle section, which would have been to the south of France, is missing. So where are these mountains? Well, what happened was that essentially the Mediterranean pushed back against Africa. Magma started to be forced upward into the valleys between southern France and these mega-alp mountains, and began spreading into a new sea floor. This is the same process going on at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, for example. As the magma is forced out, it creates new plate surface, which creates equal pressure in two directions. But if whatever's on the left side of the spread is more immobile than whatever's on the right, the pressure on the left will just build and build and build, while on the right the pressure will result in sea floor spread and new tectonic plate material. In the new Algerian basin, the result was quite strange. The European microplates to the north turned out to be largely immobile. To the south, the nearby plates were more yielding, but more so on the western side of the new fault line than in the east. As a result, the ridges of the new mountains were gradually rotated around as the plate they sat on was shoved by the spreading sea floor. When the mountains had been rotated by about 90 degrees, such that they were aligned north-south, they split again. The bulk of the mountains fell on the western side of the split and remained roughly where they were, held in place by the eastward pressure under the Algerian basin and the westward pressure from this new fissure. After many eons of weathering, these mountains became Corsica and Sardinia. 
but the eastern foothills were now separated from the rest of the mountains by a new expanse of spreading seafloor known as the Tyrrhenian Sea. Since the spread of the sea was held in check to the west, the new basin spread to the east, but in the east it met the Adriatic microplate we discussed in episode 10. The collision of these two plates drove up the Apennine Mountains, but in a very unique way. It seems that the Adriatic plate has been moving eastward, underneath the microplates that make up the Balkan Peninsula. This has put downward pressure on the eastward side, and simultaneous upward pressure on the western side of the plate. So imagine holding down one edge of a piece of plywood in a swimming pool. While much of the plate is thus under the waters of the Adriatic, the western edge is tilted upwards. Where this upward tilt met the spreading Tyrrhenian plate, it was driven in on itself, even as it retreated slowly to the east. This explains the odd, double-ridged composition of the Apennine Mountains. The western side, composed of block-fault mountains, are formed by the new material formed under the Tyrrhenian Sea piling up against the Adriatic Plate. But at the same time, the upward tilt of the Adriatic Plate, along with its composition, has made it easier for the leading-edge material to slip under the material further in, resulting in the thrust-fault composition of the eastern Apennines. But in the north, sheltered by the arc of the Alps, a section of the Adriatic Plate was not impacted by the creation of the Tyrrhenian Sea. So this section of plate is not crumbled up. It remained flat, but with a slight eastward tilt down which the river Po flows to this day. There are many things I hope to accomplish with this series. But if nothing else, I hope the episode so far has completely put to rest the idea of continents as land masses floating on their own special tectonic plates. Italy was certainly created by tectonic forces, but it balances precariously on the join between two plates, and its creation involved cobbling together bits and pieces of many different land masses. This process left mainland Italy with three central features, the Alps in the north, the Po Valley in the north as well, and the Apennines going down the rest of the peninsula. The Alps, which form a big arc and enclose the northern side of the Po Valley, have had an unusual role in Italian history. Certainly, they have separated Italy from Europe, but they have also in many ways anchored it into Europe, and vice versa. The huge arc traced by the Alps has meant that those traveling from east to west must either go north of the Alps, south of the Alps, or deal with crossing the Alps. Often the southern route was the most direct option, and this required going through the Po Valley. The residents of the mountains themselves had a key and influential role at the middle of Western Europe, but we will have to get to their story in a later episode. The Po Valley is the next big feature of Italy. Today the Po Valley is split into a whole bunch of different regions, but for our purposes let's talk about four. The eastern portion is called the Vento, and is basically the region around the city of Venice, towards the mouth of the Po River as it reaches the Adriatic. Because Venice is on the coast, let us note that the city of Padua is closer to the geographical center of the Vento. The western part of the Po Valley is called the Piedmont, and it's mostly made up of the foothills of the Western Alps. Turin has long been an important city in this region, but that role was hardly clear during the early days of our story. The largest central region of the Po Valley is called Lombardy, for reasons we will get into more in a future episode, but its main city will become Milan. The Po Valley was and is of prime economic importance to Italy. As we will see, it is one of the few flat and agriculturally productive areas on the peninsula. Moreover, the network of rivers in the valley means that communications were relatively easy even in the Middle Ages. Though many Roman infrastructural projects would go unrepaired and fall into ruin, the valley's rivers would continue to be navigable. Famously, Venice would grow up on the sandbars and islands at the river's mouth as refugees from the empire's fall settled there. But Venice benefited from more than just a defensible location. 
Early on, the marshy flatlands were developed into ponds for the evaporation of seawater into salt, giving the city a ready and exportable supply of a vital necessity. Further, because of its position, the city would rapidly develop a stranglehold on the vital riverine trade in the valley, making it one of the most wealthy cities in the Adriatic, even before the city fathers took the vessels of their city to war. Venice and Milan would eventually become bitter rivals, and though that is far beyond the scope of today's episode, in many ways it is representative of the very different economic roles the two cities played. Milan, able to gather agricultural wealth and political power from the Po Valley because of its military defenses and location at the middle of a regional transportation network, was also a more traditional feudal society. Venice, by contrast, became rich and powerful beyond measure because of its international communications network and became a face of the Middle Ages almost completely unique in Europe. South of the Po River proper, but still within the Po Valley, is a region that will become known as the Romagna, or Greater Rome. Again, the reasons for this name are going to have to wait, but it contains some key cities whose importance is instructive. Ravenna was of key importance early in our story due to its defensive position, surrounded by marshes, with a good port on the Adriatic and with easy communications to the rest of Italy by river and land. On the west side of the Romagna, so on the southwestern edge of the Po Valley, were the cities of Piacenza, Parma, Modena, and Bologna, moving from west to east. These cities gained importance because of their location at the head of passes across the Apennines, that third major feature of Italy. The Apennines form the spine of the Italian peninsula, though they tend to hug the eastern coast. While not exceptionally tall mountains compared to the Alps, they make travel and agriculture challenging, meaning settlement has had to respond to these physical realities. Even today, travel in Italy is on the east or the west side of the mountains, with travel across the peninsula being restricted to a few passes. These passes have had a major role in history. The rest of our look at mainland Italy is going to be a look at how cities exploited and to deal with their position in relation to these mountains. The first region we will visit is the area pinched between the Apennines and the Ligurian Sea, on the other side of the mountains from Piacenza and Parma. If you remember, the southern border of the Po Valley is formed by a spur of the Apennines that skirts around the valley to the southwest to join the Alps and Piedmont. The area pinched between this spur of the Apennines and the Ligurian Sea is called Liguria, oddly enough, and its principal city is Genoa, strategically positioned at the head of a key pass over the Apennines and a key pass over the Alps. This region will be quite important to our story, but for now note that Genoa is kind of an unlikely place for a successful city in the Middle Ages, as it contains little in the way of arable land. Other than the passes, its only real advantage is a good harbor. The pass over the Alps, it should be noted, is the one that passes along the coast, allowing access from southern France, a rather key route then and now. By contrast, Spezia, another city in the Ligurian region, is located at the end of a large arable river valley that ties it directly to Parma, a valuable trading partner. But Spezia was unfortunate in its other neighbors, as we will see. South of Liguria and the Po Valley, the Arno River has carved a very fertile wedge-shaped valley into the Apennines. The region was settled in prehistory by the Etruscans, and is still known as Tuscany. The Arno developed two important cities for our story, the first being Florence, located inland and fulfilling something similar to the role Milan filled in the Po Valley. At the head of the river, only a few miles down from the coast from Spezia, is the city of Pisa. Pisa and Genoa were great rivals, and Spezia was caught in the crossfire. The most famous river of central Italy is the Tiber, and I do not need to give an introduction to its chief city, Rome. 
what you may be less clear on is that the Tiber is a very, very important river. It goes way back into the Apennines. Its valley is not as fertile or wide as the Arno, let alone the Po, but the pass it creates is not only important on the western side of the mountains, but forms a long valley in between the western and eastern peaks of the Apennines. This gives it access to several important passes over to the eastern side of the Apennines. This inland trade network was highly strategic both militarily and economically. The entire length of the Tiber did not remain politically integrated throughout the transition into the Middle Ages, for reasons we will address later, and so the upper part of the Tiber came to be known as Umbria, named for another pre-Roman tribe, while the portion closest to the coast, around the city of Rome, was known as Latium or Lazio, but for our purposes I'm just going to call it the Roman region because let's just make our lives easier. The other cities of the Roman region were very much in the pocket of Rome, and their main importance is in giving the cardinals of the modern papal college their ceremonial titles. East of the Apennines, in central Italy, major rivers are rare. Agricultural land and strategic locations are scant. The region is pinched between the mountains and the sea, though not quite as badly as Liguria. In essence, this thin band of low-lying agricultural land is a corridor for travel from northern Italy to southern, a place to land goods crossing the Adriatic, and a place to access the passes over the mountains, but with limited value of its own otherwise. The region came to be called the Mark, a word meaning essentially the same thing as the word March in English, and it's pretty much spelled the same. Like the Scottish or Welsh marches, this was an area contested because it was a borderland, an area through which to travel. South of the Mark are the modern regions of Abruzzo and Molise. Like the Mark, these areas are defined by a usable travel corridor along the east coast and a very mountainous interior interspersed with a few usable passes, but you don't really need to remember them. I'm just going to lump all these regions together under the Mark for our purposes, but just so you know, that's where they are. This region has a number of good ports, and small cities did spring up at the mouths of the passes across the Apennines. But between the primacy of Venice in the Adriatic and the power of the cities on the western side of the mountains, the cities of the Mark were marginalized early. San Marino is one of the cities founded at a mountain pass, but its importance really is only in terms of its curiosity as a modern independent country surrounded by the modern state of Italy. For the purposes of our story, we should note Ancona, a well-fortified port city that will be coming up next episode. South of the Tiber, the Apennines take on a different form. The mountains spread and swing west, leaving a flat, fertile area in the east called Apulia. Apulia is another area, like the Po Valley, where the Adriatic Plate peaks above the waves. If you think of Italy as a high-heeled boot, Apulia is the heel and the Achilles tendon of the peninsula. That is to say, it consists of the eastern peninsula at the end of Italy and a section of the Adriatic shore to the north of this peninsula. Apulia has many important port cities, and has been important in the Mediterranean trade network since antiquity. Along the Adriatic coast from north to south, the most important of these cities are Bari, Brundisi, and Otrento. On the inside of the heel, near where it joins the instep of the boot, is Toronto. Southwestern Italy is, from the point of view of a farmer in the Middle Ages, a mess. It is essentially a wide, desolate plateau of rolling, scrubby hills, cut with deep valleys and interspersed with mountains, some of which are volcanoes formed by the meeting of the Tyrrhenian, African, and Adriatic plates. The chief volcano is, of course, Mount Vesuvius, which creates the big exception to the bleak picture of southwestern Italy that I have just painted. Vesuvius's activity has created a wide, flat, exceptionally fertile plain that makes up the core of a region called Campania. Campania has several cities important to our story. 
Naples and Amalfi on the coast, and inland from Naples, at the head of a fertile river valley, is the city of Benevento. That leaves two remaining mainland regions, Basilicata and Calabria. Basilicata forms the instep of the Italian boot, and Calabria is the toe. Both regions are defined by that tangle of tumbled, scrubby hills I just described, though both have rich agricultural regions and port cities along the coast. That leaves us with the islands. We've already dealt with the formation of Corsica and Sardinia, but a look at their internal geography will be warranted by our story. Both islands are, as we've discussed, basically outliers of the Alps moved out of place by geological forces. Corsica is the smaller northern island, roughly oval-shaped, with a mountainous interior. The island is lower elevation-wise around the periphery, but is almost uniformly hilly and rocky, even by the coast. River valleys create passes into the interior and thin arable strips, but for most of Corsica's history it has been considered a bad place to grow food. The exception is a strip of flat, fertile land along the east coast, referred to as the Illyrian Plain, for a settlement that even today could only really be referred to as a small town. The plain really is two plains, separated by a thin strip, so I may refer to the northern or southern Illyrian Plain in future episodes. At the top of the northern Illyrian Plain, the mountains move east and the shore moves west, drawing the plain to a point at the city of Bastia. This city, which possesses a fine natural harbor, is also at the base of a thin, mountainous peninsula that juts off of Corsica proper for some miles, making the city extremely militarily defensible. Bastia is quite isolated from the interior of the island, but the easy access to the island's only major agricultural resources, a good harbor, and an excellent defensive position made it one of the two most important cities on the island. The other important city is on the southwest coast of the island. For the most part, the west coast is more rocky and inhospitable than the east, but in the southwest a number of river valleys come together to form a critical mass of arable land. At the city of Ajaccio, some natural folds in the land come together with two river valleys to create a small plain upon which agriculture has become possible. This, combined with an excellent harbor and good communications into the interior, allowed Ajaco to become an important port. It's worth noting here that Bastia faces the Ligurian coast of Italy, while Ajaccio faces the Catalonian coast of Spain. Watch this space. Sardinia is in many ways similar to Corsica, but is much less stark. Though possessed of large stretches of inhospitable mountainous interior regions, in Sardinia these are separated by respectable fertile plains and valleys. The largest mountains are in the Genargentu range, which is an ovalish cluster in the southeast of the island. The chain of Margarine and Gociano runs in a line northeast to southwest in the northern half of the island, and a small group of mountains in the southwest are called the Sulcis and the Andalinas Mountains. The arable land between these ranges is substantial, but it's scattered. The largest areas of arable land are in the Nura Peninsula in the northwest, and the Campidano Valley, which runs from the middle of the western coast to the southeast, terminating at the southeastern tip of the island. Alghero is the chief city of the Nura Peninsula, but it is the cities of the Campidano Valley that were historically most significant. Oristano, at the western terminus of the valley, and Caligari at the southern terminus. Both are possessed of fine natural harbors and command trade access with the interior. The Bailearic Islands are the tops of a mountain chain that, to the west, becomes the Baetic system that we discussed in episode 3. One might expect that this ridge had once connected to the Corsica and Sardinia ridge, but as we have seen, that ridge was originally connected to the Pyrenees. The Baetic Bailearic ridge was part of another ridge that moved south as Corsica and Sardinia swung to the east. 
Essentially, this southern ridge broke into several pieces. The Baetic and Balearic part moved southwest and rotated in a counterclockwise direction, coming to rest where it is today in the south of Spain and the northwest of Africa. The ridge settled in place in such a way as to block the western entrances to the Mediterranean. Since the Mediterranean loses more water to evaporation than it gets from its rivers, the closure of these connections to the wider world's oceans caused the Mediterranean to dry up over the course of tens of thousands of years. We know this because we have found salt deposits in Sicily, in parts of the island that were seafloor at the time, which are hundreds of feet deep, essentially all the salt in the sea collected into a huge layer of salt. As I mentioned in episode 3, the mountains of the Baetic Ridge eventually eroded away to the point that the waters of the Atlantic pushed through, creating the Straits of Gibraltar and flooding the basin we now call the Mediterranean. This process would have taken several years, during which a totally awesome waterfall would have existed at the modern Straits of Gibraltar. The filling of the Mediterranean basin would have happened in stages, something we know because of the studies of the ocean floor have found ancient erosion channels, not only at the Strait of Gibraltar, but in the areas around the progressive stages of flooding. Of particular note are the Straits of Sicily and Messina, around the modern island of Sicily. By the time of the flooding, Sicily had at least started to take shape, creating a huge mountain range between Tunis in North Africa and the toe of Italy. This ridge was much lower than the Baetic Balearic Ridge, at least in terms of altitude, so when the basin was finished filling, most of this ridge ended up underwater. But for a few years at least, the western Mediterranean would have been filling up with seawater, while the eastern half remained dry. When this ridge was overtopped, the waters flooded east, rapidly eroding the twin channels around the island of Sicily and testifying to the magnitude of the event. But back to the Balearic Islands. Though at times mountainous, particularly on the north shore of the largest island, Mallorca, the, mountainous, the mountains of the Balearic Islands have mostly eroded to create large tracts of flat arable land surrounded by sandy beaches with lots of rain and natural sunlight, in short, the islands are basically paradise, and anyone who lives there is insanely lucky, and would have been lucky even in the Middle Ages. The islands aren't very big, but they were large enough to develop some urban culture and identity, notably in their chief city of Palma. That leaves Sicily. It is dangerous to use geography as a metaphor for the inhabitants of a place, but in the case of Sicily, the temptation is too much for even the most practiced historians, so who am I to resist? Like the people of Sicily, the island itself is an amalgam of bits of land from all over the place. The western and central parts of Sicily were once part of the Baetic Balearic Ridge. Parts were driven up from the seafloor due to Sicily's location at the conjunction of the Tyrrhenian, Adriatic, and African plates, most notably at the southern tip. The northeastern part of the island is a continuation of the Apennine mountain chain, but most dramatically, the fault which runs through Sicily lengthwise is a subduction plate meaning it is a place where one plate moves under another. In this case, the African plate is moving under the Tyrrhenian plate. As often happens in these situations, the plate moving down into the earth gradually melts as it moves into the earth's mantle. The lighter material of the liquid-hot African plate then pushes up, as hot materials naturally want to rise past cold ones in a liquid environment, particularly when under pressure. Eventually, this hot liquid magma forces its way through the crust of the Tyrrhenian plate, and the pressures released in erupting volcanoes. Mount Etna is the most famous, but Sicily is very volcanically active. So the island of Sicily is, geologically speaking, part native, part European, and part African, all covered over with layer upon layer of cooled volcanic ash. Sicily is hilly, rough terrain over most of the island, but the mountains really fall into three groups. 
The first is the chain along the northern shore. Moving from east to west, the Peloritani, Nebrani, and Madonine mountains are all really an extension of the Apennines. Mount Sicani and the mountains of the west are more tumbled and confused, and are possibly related to the Balearic Mountains, though I should probably note here how much the research on this is in flux. It's only recently that C4 geology has become practical, and much of what I am saying is subject to change as more data comes in. I am no more a professional geologist than I am a professional historian, so you should probably be taking everything I say with a big grain of salt. The High Blaine Mountains, on the southern corner of the island, is the second major group of mountains, representing the northern edge of a place where the African plate has been driven above the waters of the sea. The last group of mountains is really just the one mountain, Mount Etna, a name that apparently derives from an ancient Phoenician word for chimney. I like the Arabic name better, Al-Jabnar, the Mountain of Fire. There are a number of other volcanoes around Sicily, some active and some extinct, although most of the active ones are nowadays located on offshore islands. This geology all has a couple of upshots. First, the land in Sicily is, at least in the east, absurdly fertile due to the gentle rumblings of Etna and the volcanoes. Podcast footnote. Etna and the volcanoes would make a great band name, but the band would pretty much have to dress up as grandmas and play psychobilly to really make it work. If anyone needs a bassist and is in the Providence area, my wife has a grandma wig and there's photographic evidence that it fits me in the show notes on the website. End podcast footnote. Coastal areas, particularly in the Etna Plain and in the south and west, have thus been intensively cultivated for thousands of years. The downside to this is that Sicily and southern Italy were dangerously deforested during the Roman Empire, leading to erosion and the loss of fertility over time. Much of Sicily now resembles the desolate, scrub-covered hills of southern Italy that I described earlier, despite once being the breadbasket of Rome. But it seems likely that these are related phenomenon. Historians have only recently begun working with geographers, geologists, and archaeologists on the subject of human environmental impact. But the findings in Sicily and southern Italy were stark. Deforestation by the Romans in favor of agriculture, likely exacerbated by sloppy absentee landlords overseeing large populations of sullen slaves, led to a dramatic loss of productivity in these regions. When combined with findings that the fertile crescent lost productivity over time due to soil salinization, many historians are beginning to reassess a number of narratives of the ancient world. Were the Balkans always the desolate mountains we know today, or were they more fertile in the past? Was the eclipse of the Greek city-states as much environmental as a result of the rise of Macedon? Did Rome fall because of a civil war and barbarian raids? Or or were these situations at least exacerbated because their extractive social order ruined their ability to feed themselves? As you know, I'm allergic to single-issue solutions to big questions like these, but I find the ongoing research on this subject insanely interesting and, dare I say, important? But back to Sicily. The agricultural situation wasn't all bad because agriculture was not the only source of sustenance in Sicily. Pastoralism, like we discussed in episode 10 in the Balkans, was an option in Sicily, as it was pretty much everywhere we've discussed today. It took some very interesting forms in mainland Italy, which we'll be discussing next episode. But in Sicily, this wasn't as necessary as it was in the Balkans. The currents in the Mediterranean are inevitably forced past Sicily, meaning the waters there are some of the richest in the world. Sicilians have for thousands of years been able to pull a very generous living out of the inland sea, even using traditional methods. 
Things like coastal tuna hunts using hand nets and rowboats continue to this day, and I will post a video of this kind of event in the show note, though be warned, there are a large number of tuna being killed with spears, clubs, and kitchen knives. I really would encourage you to check it out, though. It's uh, a sight to behold. Utilizing these natural resources was easy in Sicily, as the island is studded with good natural harbors. Many of these cities became important in trade, and almost all were wealthy at one time or another. But for our purposes, we should remember four names. Trapani, on the western tip of the island. Palermo, located slightly to the east of the tip, had an even better harbor and a valuable agricultural hinterland, and was protected by mountains. Messina is located on the northeastern tip of the island, just across from mainland Italy on the Strait of Messina, oddly enough. Lastly is Syracuse, always the chief city of Sicily, due to its defensible location, access to trade routes, and control of a valuable agricultural hinterland made fertile by the close, but not too close, Mount Etna. Cities that got too close to Mount Etna tend to have survival issues. Sicily is probably the most strategically located point in the entire Mediterranean, with the possible exception of Constantinople. If you want to move east to west, or west to east in the Mediterranean, you have to pass the island. But even if you want to move north, you are likely to need to give the island a visit. See, if you were going to northern Europe from the Middle East, the best route would actually be to sail to Sicily, then pass into the western Mediterranean before turning north and moving to southern France, either by passing along the Italian coast, by moving along the islands of Sardinia and Corsica, or else by passing far to the west via the Balearics or the Castilian coast of Spain. Once one reached southern France, one could move to the west via the Aude and Garonne rivers, via Toulouse, and pass out to the Bay of Biscay. But more likely one would pass north, up the valley of the Rhone, which we discussed back in episode 3. From the headwaters of the Saône River, it was only a short way through the Vosges to the headwaters of the Rhine. Or you could go through the Morvan, to the city of Auxerre, and the headwaters of the Seine. One could even pass through the Morvan and down into the very wealthy Loire Valley. So if goods needed to move from the east into western Africa, the Iberian Peninsula, or greater France, they almost certainly did so by sailing via Sicily. If the goods were going to central Europe, the British Isles, or even Scandinavia and eastern Europe, there was still a very real chance that they passed through Sicily. The alternative routes are also instructive. Goods bound for eastern and central Europe could and did pass up the Danube, but the Danube was long and required a merchant to be vulnerable to the inhabitants of an increasingly unstable region along the length of a very long river. The alternative was to pass up the Adriatic and move the goods overland across the Alps and to the headwaters of the Rhine. While the Alps are, you know, mountains, they were sparsely inhabited and thus potentially less problematic than the vast areas of eastern Europe. Of course, at the head of the Adriatic, and patrolling its waters, were our friends the Venetians, who made sure to be on friendly terms with the tribes controlling the passes. I hope you can start to see why I waited until now to visit Italy. Even during the early Middle Ages, the Mediterranean world was part of an international trade network that was intensely interconnected. For those who lived on the inland sea, their parochial cultures were in constant and intensive contact with a wider world that went beyond the political boundaries of whatever group was in control at the time. The inhabitants of Languedoc in southern France were much more closely culturally affiliated to the Castilians of the Iberian Peninsula than they were to the inhabitants of northern France. Sicily had more in common with the people of Tunis than with the people living in the Piedmont. The Greeks of the Peloponnese had cultural ties with people in Anatolia that went back thousands of years, while the Slavic tribes moving in just a few miles away may as well have been from outer space. For Europe as a whole, 
Italy was like an antenna sticking out into the firmament of the Mediterranean world. On the one hand, vitally entwined with the trade going on in the inland sea. On the other hand, firmly rooted by the arc of the Alps into central European politics. In so doing, it tied together many cultural elements of European life. Elements I felt needed to be established independently before I arrived at the big picture. Of course, metaphors like Italy as an antenna are problematic when describing culture on the ground. Italy is not made of metal, and things that happen in Sicily are not instantaneously transmitted to the Piedmont. There were real people living there, and in the early Middle Ages they found themselves at the heart of a communications network that suddenly lacked political direction, and exposed to a Europe without protection. How this story played out is a story that is going to have to wait until next time, as we examine the political situation in Italy itself and then carry that story to the year 900. In the process, we will answer one very important question. After 467, where did all the Romans go? Thanks for listening, and bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>